the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. again. This is Martin Sobretti. It's October 14th, 2018. I'm broadcasting from Round Rock, California with another edition of Chalcedon's Q&A, Little Meat of the Word, where we take your questions and we try to answer them live. And in some cases, we get them in advance. I have a few that uh, were emailed in over the course of the last two weeks because we had last week off. I was at a conference uh, last uh, Sunday. Uh, So we took a break and here I am again today to resume the Q&A, the answer part of the questions. You guys provide the cues. I'm Mr. A's here. So let's uh, resume with the questions that came in in the meantime. I looked recently at the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and noticed that the likes of Van Til, Rushduni, Chilton, North, and Bonson are not signers of the statement. I don't know if you have any insight to why. Also, would you consider yourself a signer? Why or why not? So that's uh, my understanding, and I'm sure I can be corrected on this, that uh, one person who originated this plan was Jay Grimstead. And it's my understanding that he originated the um, confab uh, that resulted in this particular statement being issued, that it was prior to his knowledge of Christian Reconstruction, uh, though he was uh, able to pick up speed thereafter uh, with uh, things like that. So that certainly is one likely factor, is simply the timing didn't work out well to bring these men on board. Uh, now, if you check out what Dr. Bonson was writing for the Evangelical, uh, the Journal of the Evangelical Society of America, uh, you see that he was very much involved in inerrancy when they had symposia on inerrancy. And Dr. Rushton, certainly had a lot to say about the topic going way back, and it uh, uh, certainly shows up very clearly in his systematic theology. Uh, that the era and uh, the notion of inerrancy and infallibility are critical doc- doctrines for the faith, uh, for actually all thought, because someone always has some kind of infallible uh, backstop for their thinking, and the question is, what is it? And is it uh, reliable? Is it something that you can repose trust in? As to whether I would consider myself a uh, potential signer or not, assuming they asked me, uh, the trouble, of course, with all these statements is that there's the potential for weakness, there's the potential for someone to sneak in and come up with some kind of little evasion that allows you to get past it. And so when these things are formulated, there's the potential that they say, well, we can't get these uh, this group to sign unless we adjust this word. We can't get these guys over here to sign unless this wording is, is softened a bit and uh, we're going to lose these guys. Maybe it's worth losing them because we, we want to hold a line somewhere. So there's a sense in which any kind of statement like this, uh, of this nature, uh, is a source of potential compromise. And uh, even if not compromised, then certainly not broad enough to cover all the bases so that there can be no holes in it. There's a reason why the Council of Chalcedon held in 451 AD uh, was able finally to plug all the holes in the Christological doctrines that were so important, because every previous 
um, church council, uh, stated the issue as clearly as it could for the time, but then heresies figured out a way to sneak around that definition. And so you know, another council would come up and we have to reformulate the Christology again so we could deal with um, uh, Montanists and uh, each kind of different variation on uh, attacking the deity of Christ or his divinity or his humanity being simultaneous. So uh, it took centuries to resolve that and get a final statement. Who's to say that in Chicago in 1977 we were able to resolve inerrancy once and for all? The likelihood is actually very, very poor that the statement doesn't have some kind of hole in it somewhere. So that's why we need to go ahead and say, uh, be mindful. Blessings, David. Good to have you. Uh, Becky, uh, mindful of the fact that any kind of statement uh, it may not be strong enough, broad enough, complete enough, ironclad enough to hold for all time. It might be a good stopping point for today because it deals with today's controversies, but it may not be adequate for tomorrow's issues. And therefore, uh, signing it, even if you were to sign it, it would therefore serve as a stopgap measure at best. Now that's important because you need to uh, protect the ancient landmarks as they stand, but it doesn't mean that your job, job is done. Had there been subsequent uh, revisitations of the inerrancy issue in a church-wide council? No, there have not. Uh, does that mean the Chicago, Chicago statement was sufficient for all time? It doesn't mean that either. Uh, I think you need to then take the best of all the worlds and then realize who are we going to be willing to compromise to get to sign and who are we going to say uh, we're not willing to compromise this document to make you happy and willing to sign it. So you may have to give up some signatories in order to have the statement be biblical. And there's a price to pay for being on God's side in any kind of issue and that's the way it works in this world. Next question. Some Christians advocate the, quote, adoption, unquote, of frozen embryos as a way to, quote, save lives, unquote. Is this a biblical position? So there's two aspects to this. One, if you're doing this, does that mean it's encouraging other people to freeze more embryos that they would not otherwise have frozen? In other words, are we um, creating a problem uh, known as the law of unintended consequences, right? <laughs> uh, I remember Mark Rushdoony pointing out a hilarious incident where I think it was uh, China or some other country where they said, you know, we want to get rid of flies, so we'll pay people to turn in flies that they've captured and killed, say. Uh, and consequently, people figured out, well, if I want to make money, I'll breed flies and bring them in and get paid for that. So the question is, are we breeding a problem or increasing the problem by uh, provide, permit, uh, creating this apparently uh, ethical out? Uh, so there's that issue. Uh, we can't neglect it because the mind of man always seems to be able to find tricks and turns and uh, uh, configurations that kind of defeat the purpose of doing something. Now, as far as adopting frozen embryos, to me this looks a lot like what the early Christians were doing when the Roman form of abortion was to take the baby that had already been born and abandon it, let's say, at the river uh, Tiber and uh, let it just die to exposure or, or wolves or what have you. And the Christians would come at night and collect the babies and raise them as their own. And so the church grew as much by adoption as it did by conversion to the gospel. So there's a sense in which the spirit of the action to save that which is a human being, uh, and I believe really the point is not just to adopt them and keep them frozen. Now you have to say, okay, it's, it's, it's kind of suspended in time. Is that the intention for all time? I would say not. Uh, we have a, conceal, a, a conceived human life that is now in stasis, in some kind of suspended animation. Uh, that's being blocked from the potential that God wants to have unlocked for that human being. 
So it's one thing to save the life so it doesn't, it doesn't destroy. It's another thing to leave it in that uh, state between uh, prior to birth forever and indefinitely. I don't think that's the calling. So to that extent, if you simply say, I got a bunch of frozen embryos in the freezer out back because I'm a humanitarian, that's going to fall a little bit short of what the Christians in the first century Rome were doing, and second century Rome were doing. Uh, to, to be part of the full package, they need to be raised in the faith, and you cannot raise a test tube in the faith. But you can get it to that point if you uh, bring it to birth. Okay, next question. These are interesting questions. Could you elaborate as to whether the imprecatory prayers are mandatory? This is where, of course, the prayer asks for God's judgment as opposed to God's mercy or compassion on uh, someone who is uh, worthy of judgment at this point. And certainly the scriptures are rife with them, the Psalms in particular. And this became a uh, point of contention uh, that Van Til held with C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis regarded the imprecatory Psalms in particular as subscriptural, as uh, not belonging in the Bible, as clearly not God authored, because uh, Lewis brought an alien ethical system, an alien morality, uh, his own, <laughs> uh, contrived what he thought was right, and imposed it on scripture, and therefore he sat as judge on the Psalms. And Van Til says this is obviously not a, you're not sold out to scripture at this point because we're to be mastered by the scripture, not master the scripture in the sense of lording it over the Bible and declaring this is worth paying attention to. You can ignore these scriptures safely. No scripture can be ignored safely, including the imprecatory Psalms. And there's a sense in which when David talks about the hatred he has for the wicked, he declares it to be a perfect or a mature hatred because uh, it's motivated by loving the opposite. Loving righteousness means that you hate the wicked. Uh, and, of course, you can't have wickedness without wicked people to implement it. So uh, the idea that it's an abstraction, wickedness or evil is an abstraction, is simply not scriptural. It always is embodied in a human being who's willing uh, totally to, uh, and is sold out to wickedness and the violation of God's law. So let's take a look at what Van Til had to say about this entire point. He says, what is the purpose of these imprecatory psalms upon which imprecatory prayers today would be um, modeled, if you will? And he says, it's this, it's part of the mission by which God destroys evil in the world. He says, uh, the summonbonin is that the good, the righteous, the, um, uh, honesty, truth, justice will all prevail, and therefore their opposites must be set aside and conquered and defeated and destroyed. The destruction of evil is a very real pro um, program that the Bible sets forth. People have to read the rest of what Van Til says. He says, and that program starts with you and me, ourselves. It starts with you first. It starts with me first. Before I start to take uh, the, the speck out of someone else's eye, I need to work on the plank in my own eye, the optical lumber that I'm encumbered with. So the destruction of evil starts with the individual. Do we pray imprecatory psalm uh, uh, prayers against ourselves? Perhaps we should consider it. <laughs> because, of course, that program begins with the individual uh, before it extends anywhere else into um, family, church, state, elsewhere, uh, to the ends of the earth. But it will happen because the program is one that God is with. It's the one of the few things you can actually say is a uh, legitimate imperative in Scripture by which a uh, victory over an enemy is to be declared and to be worked toward. And But we work toward it in ourselves and then in society at large. So if we take that approach to it, then our imprecatory psalms will have potential merit. I believe Dr. Robert Fugate did an interesting article. You can find it at uh, lordofthenations.org. I believe it's .org. Um, if not, it's at .com or .net. But I believe it's lordofthenations.org. And you can acquire his um, little syllabus on imprecatory prayers and, and by implication, imprecatory psalms. And uh, 
that would probably be an interesting source to look at, simply because he's a scholar uh, who takes these things very, very seriously. But as for my point, I want to make clear that the imprecatory psalms, which is where David and others are, in fact, uh, breathing out imprecatory uh, prayers that are caught in the psalm, in the, in the structure of scripture canonically, uh, they do so as part of the program by which God is defeating evil and establishing the good. We, we therefore establish the law. Um, that which the Lord has not planted shall be uprooted, and that includes the wicked and those who are wicked. And ultimately, they will have no place in the world. The world will be inherited by the meek, those who are under control by God. So, important point there, not to misunderstand either direction. If you just set them aside and says, I'm not worried about imprecatory anything, then of course you're missing out on one aspect of scripture that has a full uh, set of um, commands involved in it, and uh, it's not our option to set it aside. In fact, that's the whole point that C.S. Lewis was trying to do, set these aside, they are subscriptural. And Van Til says, no, they're 100% scriptural, set C.S. Lewis aside on that point. Okay, next question. How should Christians deal with the mob mentality that the media is highlighting and fostering? Simple answer, of course, is you don't follow a multitude to do evil. Uh, and certainly not to spread it and to be a participant in it. Uh, this brings to mind the passages in um, Malachi 3. And I would draw attention to this because the Malachi 3 passage speaks to our times. There are different aspects of the Bible that talk to what we're facing here today. I like Nehemiah 4.19 because it says, The work is very great and large and we are few and far apart along the wall. That certainly marks our situation. But he, and that's in the terms of us building the kingdom of God in the midst of a gainsaying world. So here it is. Verse 16, Malachi 3, 16 to 18. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And as a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. So the point here is that the preceding verse says, uh, there's a circulation going on saying, Ye have said, It is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Uh, at which point, three, verse 16 intervenes, Malachi 3:16. They that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord heard it, hearkened, paid attention to it, noted it. God it gets our attention when we speak one to another about the world at large and the uh, way that it's he heading to hell in a handbasket, and God makes a note of it. So in the times that are where you have this moral declension and a massive cultural decline, we are uh, to obviously to be communicating with one another, to be communing with one another, and to be praying with one another, uh, and God notes it. And sometimes that is the backstop. And so that's our obligation at that point. Uh, not to be part of that process of gainsaying God and saying, what does it profit anyone? Because these guys have all the uh, social media platforms. They can deplatform a Christian. They can demonetize a website uh, that they don't like because it has a Christian emphasis. All these things they will fail in their missions. Uh, everything that the wicked plans will come to naught. That much is clear. Okay. And the other option, of course, is create your own media. And there's uh, people are starting to say, we're not stuck with 
Facebook and other options. There are alternatives out there that are coming up, and some of them are much more suited to perhaps even implementing the kind of idea that Malachi 3.16 talks about. Now, that said, it's still our mission to build. They that shall be, the, shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. So we actually have a work to do in setting an, an alternative in place. Dr. Rushton, you said early on, you are sponsoring a countermeasure to the decline of American culture here by your support of uh, his work with Chalcedon when he founded it 53 years ago. Is anyone currently working on establishing Christian courts of justice? Would such courts have to be under the jurisdiction of the church? So these are two very separate questions. Yes, there's work to start establishing them. One way, of course, is to establish a Christian law school that is uncompromised, that is not compromised. That's the trick, right? Uh, in fact, lots of the times when a new Christian law school that's started is because they look at the other ones that's claimed to be uh, drawing a line in the sand and saying this is biblical justice and anything short of this does not and we're not going to teach our uh, lawyers and our judges that come forth from us to do this. Uh, so that is one aspect to it. Second, Paul makes it clear, you know, you should be able to adjudicate uh, cases in within the church did not God provide you know enough insight and uh, counsel with the Word of God to so be able to dig in there and get the job done and he says instead you guys are resorting to secular courts so one reason that, a way that you would uh, stop resorting to secular courts is to rise up Christian jurisprudence uh, I have in my back bookshelf at the home a copy of the journal of Christian period jurisprudence. I don't know if they're still producing it or not, but it shows that we need to have it, and I do not know to what extent it is theonomic in orientation. Chances are, not much. But uh, I haven't looked at it in a while, and uh, that's where we need to go. We are in the point of time where the foundations are destroyed, and therefore we need to be working to rebuild the foundations. And part of that is going to be the foundation of Christian courts, because Christian courts were a huge deal in the Roman Empire, as it was declining, people lost faith in the state courts and resorted to the Christians where they could get justice. And so we need to be that light on the hill, if you will, city on the hill. Would such courts have to be under the jurisdiction of the church? It's my opinion that they do not have to be under the jurisdiction of the church. In fact, it's probably dangerous that, uh, for many, many aspects. Uh, there's a reason why the civil domain and the spiritual domain were divided between the tribes of Judah and Levi. God put a separation so that the two would not be united but have separate jurisdictions. The two jurisdictions are only united in Christ's own person and nowhere else. Um, he is a priest upon his throne, king and priest simultaneously, and the council of peace shall be between them both, between the office of priest and the office of king. And uh, this is I'm quoting from Zechariah 6, 12 and 13 and he builds a temple of the Lord. So it's very, very important to realize that there's a reason for the separations because when all that power is aggregated in one place, we have a problem. Now, why did God decide to unite them in Christ? It's this. The priest, of course, would have mercy and compassion, but he had no power to implement it. Whereas the kings would have power and great authority, but were usually lacked compassion. Uh, and we see this right after the death of Solomon, how completely this is the case. Uh, and then the downhill slide uh, after the, for the fourth king and, and then the splitting of the empire, the kingdom. So humans use a limit to which you can make with bad eggs. And therefore God separated things out. And I believe that's also the case that if you have the church rule the church, the Christian courts, then of course the church courts are beholden to the church and not to the word of God directly. And they must rule for God, not for the church. Uh, this is why 
uh, people regarded Elijah as someone who troubled Israel, right? <laughs> and uh, why Jesus was considered a troubler of the temple and, 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 a, and a savage uh, critic and a malefactor because they provided the word of God unadorned and applied it where people didn't want it applied into the dark corners of church and state. And so uh, all jurisdictions are open to the scrutiny and the searching of the word of God and the light that is able to send to reprove all works of darkness. And works of darkness can happen in state, in family, and in church. Therefore, putting them under the jurisdiction of the church is one good way to muzzle the Christian courts. Now, do they have to have some kind of accountability? Yes, they do. So then we have to work those details out. Uh, a church, but notice how that worked in the early Roman era. Because the, everyone could plainly see that justice was being served, that was their license to continue operating. The results were godly and they were just. Uh, and so people could tell by the fruit of the court. Today's courts, the fruit of them, is lawlessness and persists to this day to be exactly that. Could you discuss the biblical morality of transplantation? I'm going to have uh, Ground Control put up a link that I provided uh, for the Journal of Biblical Ethics and Medicine. It's probably the third time we're putting up this link since we started these Q&A sessions. It's because the, uh, Edward M. Payne, the M physician who uh, was the driving force of the journal, was in a position to um, take all these questions and provide input from across at least the American spectrum of Christian physicians uh, and sometimes beyond that, uh, people who were able to put sanctified and consecrated wisdom to work to answer these questions. So there's always problems with transplantation uh, because human beings are involved in that. It doesn't mean it always has to be a problem, but there can be. There's no question that if you just look, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, uh, Paul makes mention, I think it was the Galatians, that they were willing to, to give, give him their eyes. In other words, they would have been willing to undergo an eye transplant so that Paul could see. That's how willing they be, uh, were. Uh, so, but there's something very distinctive about this proposed transplantation, apart from the fact they didn't have the medical technology to pull it off. We do now today. Uh, what's this? Voluntary. It was voluntary. It was, um, I'm be willing to give you my eye or my kidney, whatever it might be. You're willing. Now, there's a price to pay from the point of view of both parties to that. One might have one less eye or a kidney, uh, and in that case, uh, there's a risk. And the risk then is removed for the other party, except for the fact that the body rejects things that it sees as immunologically incompatible with it. Uh, so the body tends to reject what it regards as alien tissue. Now you have to subvert the body's resistance to a transplanted structure. It's done with bones by irradiating a bone uh, so that it uh, doesn't look like it's something bad. And we can put metals in all the time, titanium and uh, onyx carbon, things like that. The body doesn't detect them and sees them as part of itself. But some another human eye or a kidney or something like that does not look like it's part of the body, and the body then resists this attempt to transplant it and will try to eject the transplanted organ. So in the process of trying to stop that process, you then remove the other protections that human being has against illnesses because their immunological response has to be suppressed and that puts them at risk again. So not easy to pull these all these things off. Just uh, last week, Dr. Kaiser was telling me of an interesting case that came before him as a pastor involving transplantation where uh, a husband came and said, my wife is very, very ill. It's, in fact, has been in a coma for quite some time and they're telling me she is brain dead. There's no neuro... Uh, no um, EEG activity, uh, electroencephalogram is flatlined. 
And by their definition, she's dead and we need to move fast to harvest the organs while they're still good. And Dr. Kaiser says, but that's not the biblical definition of death. Uh, you should not, in fact, allow them to pull the organs until she's actually truly dead by a biblical standard. Uh, remarkably, and to the point of the story, a week later that woman was alive and well and talking and coherent and all back together again. Uh, in other words, the coma was lifted and the definition of death was wrong. So uh, unless you use a biblical definition of death, uh, you will find yourself confronted with, we've actually murdered this person in order to harvest organs and transplant them into someone else because we're in a hurry to make the money for the transplantation. And we've written off this poor woman as dead because the uh, EEG is flat. But in actual fact, she was not dead and she's alive and well today, but she'd be dead if the transplanters had their way. So we obviously have a lot of legwork to do in terms of getting the ethics in order so that we can even consider a proper approach to uh, transplantation. It's one thing to say, if I'm dead under these conditions, and then there would truly not be a murder involved, uh, and I want to donate this, I suppose then we could work out the, the theology of that. Just like the Galatians said, we would, Paul says, we want to give me your eyes so that I could see. Uh, by the way, that thought was echoed by Helen Harris, the famous blind artist who founded their Retinitis Pigmentosa uh, Foundation. Uh, when uh, another young girl wrote her, she, Helen was in her 60s or 70s, explained that she was going blind from RP, Retinitis Pigmentosa. And uh, Helen said, I would give her my own eyes, but they wouldn't do her any good. I'm blind too. So the attitude is right to give someone else what you uh, would hope it helped them out. That is a sacrificial attitude. But the science and the technology is getting ahead of the ethics, and so biblical ethics then needs to confront and grapple with these things more fully than we have. That's why I'm putting up the post, uh, the link to uh, Dr. Payne's Journal for the Biblical Ethics in Medicine, because you'll get multiple articles on this that extend it far beyond the brief scratching of the surface that I've done today here for you. Okay, here's an interesting question. Hello, thank you for your podcast. I heard an interesting, intriguing talk about the effects of Solomon's wisdom, God's wisdom via Solomon, on the ancient world, pursuant to verses like 2 Chronicles 9.23. Now, 2 Chronicles 9.23 says, All the kings of the earth came to visit uh, Solomon to hear uh, and see his wisdom in action. So it wasn't just the Queen of Sheba. Uh, the entire realm that knew of Solomon came to visit him. In other words, he had a great evangelical power in what he was saying. Uh, people marveled at his wisdom. Would you be willing to discuss this topic and hopefully recommend a book or two on the subject? Uh, I do not have a book to recommend, but I'm going to go ahead and finish the question here. Where he puts in parentheses, the questioner, I believe there may be implications for topics like common grace, natural law, etc. For example, did Plato, Aristotle, Confucius, etc. develop their philosophies purely through natural revelation, or were they impacted by special revelation emanating from Israel? Why didn't the Maoris of New Zealand, the Aztecs of Mexico, or other isolated tribes reach heights like Plato et al., etc.? Thank you. So the first thing to say is, what was the wisdom that emanated from Israel? I'm going to have ground control, to be so kind, thank you for the previous link for the Journal of Biblical Ethics and Medicine. Put a second link up. Now this link is only going to be good for the next 60 days. Uh, but it's um, a compilation of articles written by Dr. Miles Jones that we published in Chalcedon's Faith for a Life respecting the origin of writing. By writing, I don't mean ideograms and pictographs. I'm referring to symbols that represent sounds, a syllabary. And the contention of uh, Dr. Jones, and he uh, shows archaeological evidence that's very profound for it, 
mirrors that of John Owen, who taught in the 17th edition of his uh, complete works called Biblical Theology, published uh, for the first time in English in 1994, when he speaks about the antiquity of language that the kind of language that involves symbols representing sounds originated at Mount Sinai. So the ability to even write things down is a gift of the Hebrews that God gave the Hebrew nation to make them a literate nation, commanding them all to be able to write and read them all day long. The Levites were sent as a tribe to enforce literacy across the entire uh, kingdom of, of God there. And uh, I have to tell you, so you uh, wonder, has Martin gone off the deep end? No, I myself objected when I first read Owens. When Owens first floated the idea, I said, no, 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 no. The Phoenicians invented the alphabet. This is clear. Cadmus from Lydia did this, 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 and it's all well known. Well, John Owen is no slacker. and He knows all these stories and this history, and he completely subverts it uh, decisively, powerfully, and I was compelled at the end to say, boy, was I wrong. Uh, even though I, now I'm, I'm going to hold to a position that's controversial, I know that the firepower is on John Owen's side, and so Dr. Miles is following the same footsteps from an archaeological point of view, showing that the ancient Tumudic um, uh, alphabet originated at Mount Sinai, and, and there's no predecessor prior to that point, and there's no predecessor of any uh, phonetic alphabet prior to that point either in history. Uh, and of course, Chalcedon has published revisionist histories before, showing a lot of the chronologies had to be pulled in and contracted to actually take account of the data that's there in front of them. So, uh, all that to say, much of what we can say in terms of putting someone like a Plato, Aristotle, or Confucius in play, setting aside their worldview, which uh, was not biblical, except it only had pictures or a shadow of it, was that there was the ability to write. And so this was a, uh, a Hebrew invention, if well, or actually God's direct gift to the Hebrews, which would then pass to the rest of the world. Uh, and so then the next question comes this. Why didn't the Maoris of New Zealand, the Aztecs of Mexico, or isolated tribes reach heights like Plato? Well, I think the heights to be reached are not necessarily the Platonic heights, because his mission uh, idea of a great society represented in the Republic is repugnant. It's a repugnant Republic <laughs> in all respects, morally, biblically, ethically. Uh, it's a horrible place. But that said, the actual thing we should be looking at is what happened after the Reformation into the Puritan era, the fantastic rise in science and industry. Where did it go? Oh, there it is. Now, this unfortunately is out of print, but it's going to come back into print. This is a Journal of Christian Reconstruction from 1979. It's volume 6, number 1. Symposium on Puritanism and Progress. And in it, E.L. Hebden Taylor points out, as does the previous Arthur Charles Dykes before him, uh, what happened. There was a tremendous explosion of uh, science, and why did that arise? Because the biblical worldview supplanted the previous worldview decisively. Uh, and that involves, for example, linear progress in th through time, the notion of linear progress, not cyclical things that repeat forever, and therefore we never get out of uh, those um, cyclical notions. I've always come back around to the same things. There's no progress. So the notion of linear progress toward a goal, such as from creation to consummation, marks the Puritans. And therefore, it's no wonder that more than two-thirds of the um, Royal Academies uh, in uh, uh, England were populated by Puritans, astonishingly enough. More than two-thirds of them. Uh, we have a similar thing with the French Academy of Sciences, with 80 Protestants um, dominating the picture there. Why are they doing science? Why is science dominated by the Puritans? Because the Puritans were brought back the Dominion Mandate, and the notion that the 
managed to have a reverential respect for nature and to extract from it, to dig out the ores with his fingers that Deuteronomy 8 tells us to do, and uh, then to use our skill and cunning to become a, a cunning artificer uh, to make tools that then create tremendous things. Uh, and those are all forms in which the great um, the uh, dominion mandate is implemented. So uh, a linear view of time is a big deal. It's the reason why, say, a culture that it does not have that approach does not actually develop the implications of something. Like, mm, we could have guns, that's probably not the best example in some people's minds, but it, it certainly wouldn't, was not in the mind of those who said, well, our culture, we like fireworks, and that's the most we're going to get out of gunpowder is um, pyrotechnics, as opposed to something a little bit more decisive. So I think it's the biblical worldview that makes the difference in the world. Uh, excellent. It looks like we actually have that online, uh, much to my pleasant surprise, and so Ground Control has given us, uh, uh, those who are interested in pursuing this question, plus the questioner himself, uh, an option to take a look-see, where I think the more decisive element is involved. That when the Word of God is unleashed as uh, the whole counsel of God, and we are to walk by every single uh, jot and tittle out of it, then this informed the scientific revolution and put us on a much better platform. So, not to mention what John Owen had to say about people like Plato and Aristotle. Uh, he made it the comment, there is not a scrap of ethics to be found in the Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle. Uh, and he also said this about the Greek um, philosophers. He says, we only study them for the same reason a chemist studies poisons, to find the antidote. Uh, and I think Owen is right on the mark there. We can take uh, heed to what the Puritan had to say about Plato and Aristotle. However, there certainly is a sense in which uh, Common Grace says that these, this wisdom of Solomon was something that want, people wanted to emulate, but they didn't always emulate it with the law of God. It was something else that was in place, and therefore the, uh, scripture, the scriptures tell us that Israel is told, this law is your wisdom. And so to proceed without the law of God is now to have a detached abstract notion of wisdom. It's only going to get you so far and no farther than that. So. All right. Last question that came in online before we take live ones and uh, work without the, the net, and <laughs> as I say. Most understand how the state usurps the jurisdiction of the family. What are the ways the church can do so? In other words, usurping the jurisdiction of the family. Uh, the last um, post I'm going to have Ground Control put up is from my article, Power Grabs in Church and State, which I published um, a year ago. And it was actually a reprint from the um, foreword that I wrote to Dr. Rushton's book, Sovereignty. And it is a significant um, chapter because it indicates that there's this penchant for power to always uh, accrue and aggregate uh, into the least worthy hands. And that tragedy then uh, is multiplied when then we have an inversion of the authority. You see, the family has its um, sphere of influence and jurisdiction, and so does the state and so does the church. And when they, uh, there's no point of common interpenetration except that they all owe allegiance to God and they all are to obey God's law. Uh, so the church has authority over the family when the family is in violation of God's law uh, in terms of the spiritual component of it. And the state has authority over the family if the family is violating uh, God's law in respect to the civil domain uh, in terms of, say, the second uh, table of the law. But anything beyond these limitations and these restrictions 
uh, and you start to move across the boundaries that God set, then, of course, you have tyranny. That means that we are unanchored from Scripture, and the church as well as the state can move in terms of being a tyrant. A tyrant church is unfortunately a very contemporaneous phenomenon that we face daily. Now, one of the more invidious forms I'm personally familiar with, and it um, very much grieves me, is I know here in Texas, Southern Baptist churches, where the pastor goes out of his way to try to coerce a member to give up homeschooling and put their children in the public school. Uh, in other words, the, the fact that this one family is homeschooling is a moral offense because it calls out all the others for putting their children in the public school. And so the pastor says, you need to fall in line. You need to move in terms of uh, getting your child in there as a uh, missionary. Yeah, see, so he turns the tables on the family and therefore uses the church jurisdiction uh, to try to compel and coerce compliance with the church's prerogatives. And that, of course, is the danger. So the father has the ultimate responsibility with the mother. They jointly rule the family, uh, and they rule it under God's law. It's not an uh, unanchored or unhinged rule. It is limited by the law of God, such that even a child, knowing the law of God, can, um, under certain conditions, uh, contradict the parent. It's interesting when that happens, because then the parents themselves uh, learn some interest, some humility from a corner they did not expect it. But, you know, if you're doing your job right as a parent, you would be wanting your children to correct you biblically. You did your job right, and you should actually rejoice in the fact that, oh, he studied the better, Bible better than I did. I told him to study the Bible, and now he comes at me and gives me a biblical analysis of something that I was off base on. So if you're not teachable, you're not suitable to be a parent, a father or a mother. So bottom line is that there's a lot of power that's given to the family, and there's a reason why Dr. Rushtuni held that the family is the basic unit of society. Strong families make for strong churches. Strong churches don't necessarily make for strong families. Uh, they, can, they can simply exist as an end in themselves, and that is the problem. Uh, if, but if a, fam if a church is seeing to the building and edifying of the families under it, then that's suitable. That's what a shepherd is ought to do. Let all things be done unto edification. That's the calling. And so if the church is building up the families, um, then we don't expect to see any coercion or usurpation of authority. In fact, a strong church will see that the family's prerogatives are protected, preserved, and encouraged and extended. And that's why you would see a lot of Christian Reconstructionist ministries moving in this direction. Sadly, you'll find those who name the name of Christian Reconstruction moving in the opposite direction, using that as a pretext for uh, tyrannical uh, coercion against families who are not necessarily doing anything wrong uh, or anything unbiblical. Uh, and thereby hangs a tale because the horror stories that can be told would take up the next 10 years, and I would definitely be hoarse after that. And you would not be edified by it. So that's the, the point. So uh, that opposition to homeschooling tells me at that point that when the father, who has the authority and the responsibility to train up his child in the way he should go, is told by the church, you're doing it wrong. You need to do it our way. And you must release that child into the state's hands, and you must uh, leave off trying to teach them, except maybe on Sunday mornings, assuming we don't compel you to put the child in our youth program. Um, my own personal experience is that uh, when my children, in between 2001 and 2005, when I lived in Austin, preferred to sit under 
by, and they chose to, they didn't have to. Rather than being in the youth program at the PCA church, they sat in the adult class where I was teaching. Um, they, they were, one, used to it. Two, they did not get anything out of the uh, youth program. Uh, it was, in effect, um, not designed to train for maturity and righteousness. And so the people said, well, you know, if your children went there, we'd consider it an endorsement of the youth program. I said, I'm not going to uh, they are free to choose where they believe they're getting fed. And I gave them a hunger for God's Word, and that hunger is not satisfied there, but in one of the other classes where the adults are, then I'm going to say they should sit at the feet of where they're being taught, where the light is. They should not be repeating the same thing over and over again. See, this is actually forbidden in uh, Hebrews 5.11. You're not to have a perpetual kindergarten going back to basics continually, back to the rudiments, the first principles. You're supposed to move on to the other things, leaving behind as your foundation, uh, the six fundamental cardinal doctrines of the faith. And so once you get those down, you can move on, and are supposed to move on and to grow, uh, and to be teachers of others. So all that to say, uh, the churches uh, have a wide variety of conduct in this regard. Okay, Jason, good to have you here, and Bill, Brother Bill. Now, let me see. Uh, I do not know, I've seen the name Stephen Molino, but I do not recall in what connection. So, if we want to make that a question for next week when I can actually get uh, some information about this gentleman and his work, I will pass it up the line. Now, Arnold knows a little bit about curricula since he works for the Robinson Curriculum uh, and uh, therefore is aware of what it takes to put an alternative to the status education out there and also to perhaps do one better than some of the attempts at a Christian um, curriculum out there. So uh, if he's suggesting it to me, I believe that that's probably wise for me. Uh, the conference in Pennsylvania, how did it go? Yeah, that's an interesting question. From a spiritual point of view, in terms of people being edified, uh, I believe it was a success. That doesn't mean that there are not some loose ends that will need to be dealt with and which I'm going to undertake to deal with uh, because there is uh, a prevailing... Um, I guess I can call them ideas concerning certain connections and relationships. Uh, and I think they represent a misunderstanding of how the scripture in its totality deal with these questions. Uh, there's a phrase that Dr. Rushtuni uses in uh, when he comments on 2 Corinthians 2. And he says that we don't, there's that we, and the way, the gist of it is, you don't let the tail wag the dog. So the most ultimate important thing is whether the kingdom of God, uh, its prerogatives, is moving forward. Everything else uh, has to be secondary or will be added to you if you seek the kingdom of God first. So there's a lot to be said about the issues. And there was a controversial speaker. If it weren't for the fact there was a controversial speaker both years, the first year there was and the second year there was. Um, and uh, those, I, I cannot account for why the, the, uh, these kind of speakers are put on the, the roster. But you're not compelled to listen to these controversial speakers if you don't want to. They're in breakout sessions, for example. So you have to actually voluntarily walk into a small room that seats about 30 people, 24 actually. You have to stand up if you want more um, and uh, listen to him. So, uh, and if you didn't want to, you could avoid uh, a speaker that you disagreed with sharply for one of several different grounds, uh, all of which need to be taken seriously. It's not that I'm deaf to those issues, but I'm also very much uh, alive and hearkening to what God's kingdom requires. 
and where God's kingdom. And so there's, in other words, we have this issue of purity on one side, doctrinal um, purity and integrity, and we have the other issue of the building up the kingdom. And uh, under certain circumstances, one can articulate the other. In other circumstances, it cannot. So the question is, where do we stand with this? Uh, so if I were to say it was a wonderful conference, that would be half-truth insofar as that it also was a conference, the very fact that it went forward uh, created frictions uh, in the Christian Reconstruction community that I think are regrettable. But I believe that uh, when I put out an explanation of my, my take on it, which I intend to do later this week uh, and publish, uh, it will articulate exactly where we stand and why what we do and do not endorse, because some people say, well, there's an implicit endorsement, and that's not the case, and I'll explain how that works out and what the biblical evidence and uh, background for that position is, so that we can better grasp and understand and perhaps learn from this uh, at a conference. Uh, insofar as the content of uh, the parts that I heard, uh, it was outstanding content. Uh, there was nothing negative about the content. But we do have a, a cloud of controversy over the conference and uh, because of uh, there were objections to whether one speaker was even on the docket. Now by docket I don't mean everyone had to stand here and he stood up at the main podium and had held a court in, uh, to a captive audience. That never happened. In fact the speaker left uh, midway through the second day and didn't even wasn't even around nor did I ever speak to him during the time of the conference. So uh, all that to say there's some complications here and I appreciate the zeal for those on both sides of the question. Uh, each of them is emphasizing a different thing at the expense of the other. And that's what causes, uh, can cause a conflict. Uh, Dr. John Frame put this very, in a very interesting way when he wrote in the uh, Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. He says, do not criticize another Christian on a matter of emphasis. So someone one might be emphasizing one thing, another one says, well, you should be emphasizing this thing. Well, the point is that God has having both things being emphasized and nothing is supposed to be left to to, uh, to rot and to be not brought onto the table for consideration. And when you have something that's important, all the aspects of Scripture, the whole counsel of God has to be brought into bear to say, okay, what is the uh, what does God's Word have to say about this taken in totality? Now, I can see the point of view of those who objected to the conference because I know every single Scripture that was brought to bear and they make total sense in themselves. But then if you widen, the, if, you, if you just see that set of scriptures and nothing else, it's this ironclad case that that conference perhaps should have uh, ejected this, this speaker potentially. Um, at least it looks like a strong case to me. But when you actually widen the scriptures out and say, but what does everything in the scripture have to say about this? Then the, that suddenly solid case becomes weaker and weaker and moderated quite a bit to the point where uh, the demands being made about the conference uh, no longer hold the kind of water they looked at at first glance. In other words, the Proverbs 18.17 showed that when we apply the whole counsel of God, it's a more complex picture, it's a moderated picture. I don't like to use the word nuance because when you talk about nuance, you say, well, that's evasion. Nuance is always evasion. No, that's what's actually saying. There are other scriptures that brought to bear speak decisively in this regard and need to be therefore balanced. And so the question is, where do we find the balance between two very legitimate concerns? Uh, and where should that balance lie? And we actually get answers to that question in the New Testament, and I'm going to uh, articulate what those texts are when I respond to it. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here because 
this thing does not lend itself to a discussion on a Q&A other than just to simply say, I am going to prepare that analysis because it deserves some energy and attention on my part to get it right and not to do it slap uh, haphazardly or a slapdash job, but rather thoroughly uh, from every single source that I have at my disposal to say, this is why the thing went down the way it did and this is the justification for it and this is how you should understand it and this in no wise implies that we have agreements with the controversial um, lecturer on who was in that room with his small voluntary audience for that period of time in that uh, conference. So uh, important to see that uh, there actually is more to it. So for those who were grieved that we were attending the conference, be patient and wait and see. In other words, hold your judgment until you see what I have to say about it because uh, I understand the basis of your grief. And for those who uh, gloried in the conference, I can understand that too. I had one couple who came up to me and said, you know, we were not going to attend because of the controversial lecture until we wrote you and you explained the situation. We came and we were totally blessed. We're so glad we came. I said, uh, and that to say they didn't have anything to do with the other lecturer, but they said that the vistas of blessing were stupendous and now they're charged up and they're going to make a difference in their hometown. So in other words, the work of God was going to proceed with that, whether or not you had a controversial lecture on the docket. Okay, conference as a whole was, um, was a good thing, uh, Charles. Um, I think Paul Michael Raymond's messages were stupendous. I think my first message was uh, better than my second, which, because I got into some details on what I had to say, because I was trying to make it practical. And practicality is a difficult thing to bring down uh, if you try to lift people up on the topics that you're touching on. But yes, I would say, uh, it was a conference. It had 10% better attendance in the previous year, and that just might be organic growth through the fact that they're working hard. But yeah, it was um, my, my personal assessment of the conference is that it was a, a success, and uh, I, the fellowship was very, very good. Um, and but there was a dark cloud, and I don't deny that there was a dark cloud. I want to account for it. Okay, is so there any other questions that came up? Oh yes, of course. Uh, now, the uh, Book of the Month Club that just took place last Monday, um, Crown Control can probably put up the link for it because it was finally put up online at Calcedon shortly after it happened, and I have been enjoying the lively discussion on intellectual schizophrenia. And we have a new one coming up where Mark Rashtuni is going to discuss Freud, the book by R.J. Rashtuni, uh, that is one of the most important studies on Freud. It's a short book, so if you even wait till the last day before, you could read the whole book in one sitting. It's that, that short, but pun, uh, punchy and to the point because what Freud did was completely subvert the doctrine of sin and guilt and indicate that your guilt is not an indication that you're made in the image of God and therefore are acknowledging that you're breaking God's law. In other words, conscience, if you will. Uh, natural response before your conscience is seared to violation of God's law and harming individuals and your relationship with God, harming yourself but rather that it's an illusion. And so Dr. Rashtunia brings this all in to show how ineffectual and world-changing Freud's pseudo-achievement is. So that would be a powerful one, November 5th. I will also be uh, uh, continuing the book of the month, uh, I mean our Q&As through the rest of October without break. So there'll be no break anymore now that I've been gone. And uh, Arnold points out there's a huge difference between a curse, sin and a curse, and that is true enough. Uh, sins can bring upon a curse, and uh, a, um, I think there's a scripture that says, the curse causeless shall not fall. 
So the, the, that text is indicative that God's not necessarily going to levy a, a curse without there being a precipitating uh, cause for it. The curse is an effect, if you will, of a preceding cause. There we go. The uh, schizo Intellectual Schizophrenia Book of the Month, led by uh, Andrew Schwartz and uh, Pastor Peter Allison. Excellent discussion, very lively, uh, and I highly recommend that. But get with the program with the new Freud conference coming up. And if you have questions for us and you want to send them in advance, simply do that. Uh, email your question to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. And uh, in the order that they receive, I answer them. I print them out just before broadcasts and uh, tr try to walk through them. Sometimes I get a chance to look at something uh, uh, in more detail and provide links, and other times we, we wing it, depending on how complex the question is. All right, are there anything else? As far as that conference is concerned, they will start uh, posting the videos and the audios of all of the uh, presentations, which is what they did last year when they also had a controversial speaker. The big difference is last year's speaker was one of the uh, plenary session speakers who everyone had to listen to. <laughs> and this year, that was not the case. It was simply a breakout session speaker in a side room. Nonetheless, controversy both years. And I don't know if uh, third's the charm, we're gonna, whether I'm going to not have to face any issues uh, or whether we're going to have another uh, interesting times, as the Chinese call it. Any other questions? If not, looks like we'll be ending nine minutes early, if that's the case. I don't mind ending early, but I don't want to leave off uh, answering a question if someone has one pending. But as I scrolled back up, I saw nothing, uh, hardly any questions that arose today. It's a question-free zone. That's sad because uh, we're here for the questions. All right, yeah, I'm going to give a 10 second, none that, okay. Ground control sees nothing, I see nothing. Uh, and that indicates that um, the people of God are content today and they can uh, sit at ease for the time being. Enjoy your Sabbath day all and we will see you next week. Send your questions in in the meantime. So long as they're questions, we will try to provide biblical answers. Uh, and remember, nuance is not the same thing as evasion. Nuance is important. Right, do remember Chalcedon in your prayers and your giving. What we do, we achieve simply because you make it possible to do so. We have some large projects in the work. Faith in Action is uh, in production. Uh, it was not possible to have it ready by October, but with your prayers and support, we may have it out by Christmas time, and that is massive. That, the only thing that's like it is the informed faith that appeared uh, a few months back where we had the collected position papers. This is everything else that Dr. Restroni wrote for the Chalcedon Report, also organized with the same kind of massive indexes. So it's a tremendous tool for Dominion that's going to be made available. Uh, the only way you could get that material prior to the point of this being printed, uh, and it wasn't indexed, you couldn't find it, was to have an old set of the complete Chalcedon Report, a gigantic stack of uh, printed sheets, and you'd have to hunt, hunt, hunt. Well, now the indexers at Chalcedon have done the hunting for you. So as a Christmas gift, something to consider. We appreciate all those who made it possible to print that. And there's more works on the way. As you heard, I mentioned Dr. Rushtuni's commentary on Second Corinthians. You're thinking to myself, Martin, he didn't print one. Well, it's in galley-proof form, and I have access to it, but we want to print it. We want to finish up the technical read-through and get that in print, too, because he did, in fact, do a commentary on First and Second Corinthians about the church and society. As an important volume, it needs to come out too. So your prayers and your support will make that possible. 
uh, agree, the amazing uh, interviews with Dr. Moorcraft that is coming up with the Other Question podcast where Dr. Charles Roberts and uh, Andrea Schwartz uh, sit down with uh, Dr. Moorcraft, who also was having a major work of his being republished. His authentic Christianity, massive five-volume work, commentary, I guess, on the larger catechism, if I remember right, uh, is going to be reprinted also with similarly powerful indexes in a new edition. So all these important um, bricks that form the foundation of a strong theological basis so that you're anchored are being made available to the generation that's now alive. And I think that's a powerful thing where those, uh, in the case of Dr. Rushton, though uh, dead yet speaketh, in Dr. Moorcraft's case, he's able to have this work that had been in, uh, in print for a while. Oh, thank you. Ground Control knows something I don't. I should know because I am associated with the publisher. <laughs> but it's going to be seven volumes, indicative that uh, there's more work and, there's, uh, and it's been extended. So very, very good. Uh, Philippe Macedo, he said something here. He put the word fathers. Let me find out the first part. Was there a first part? I don't. Ground Control, did you see anything that Philippe said besides the word fathers? Asterisk. If not, maybe he can uh, email his uh, challenger's question to ask.kelsey.kelsey.edu and we'll take it up. Nope. Okay. Well, um, I agree that fathers are important. That much is certain. Uh, because um, James 1 informs us that all the uh, fatherhood under heaven are named after him, that he's the ultimate father in whom is no shadow or change due to turning. I think uh, that phrase out of James 1.17 tells us what our calling is to be as fathers. That and uh, Hebrews 12 tells us our failings. James 1 tells us what the model is. And, J and Hebrews 12 says we just chastise our children as seemed right to us, but God perfectly. So the goal is to chastise our children as God would chastise them unto edification and growth in the faith. So to that end, that's what Chalcedon exists for, to assist you in providing what you need for your family to be equipped, fully equipped for every good work. And that is what we're here for. So thanks again for your prayers. We'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.